Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. I hope you're doing well today. Um, I'm looking forward to this time I get to spend with you in the Bible, and I'm looking forward to starting something new with you today. So if you have a Bible, turn to Philippians 1. 1. We're going to be in the book of Philippians today. And while you're turning there, I'd like to invite our legacy partners to a meeting that we're having tonight at 7 o'clock. It's our partners meeting. If you're a covenant partner with Legacy Church, we're going to be going over some short-term and long-term vision pieces for who we are as a people and how we're going to move forward in the next weeks and months, especially as it's colored and nuanced by this giant disruption that we have around us today. Our goal in these meetings, just to remind you, it's not just to update you with how things are or to keep you in the loop and answer questions, although we're going to do all of those things. It's also to continually place the mission of God before us as a church. The mission of God hasn't stopped because social distancing has begun. It's actually been enriched. Our mission is before us still. We're a healthy church and we're in a city that has a lot of need and we have a lot of work before us over the the weeks and months ahead. Also, I understand that we're entering into a season with a lot of confusion. Um, it's being, becoming difficult for people to know what is open and what is closed, uh, how many people can go in, why, what that looks like, what are the precautions you're supposed to have. And that's no different for church. A lot of people are wondering what church is going to look like as far as a gathering. Now, you and I both know, because we beat the drum all the time, that we are the church. We have a church gathering, though, on Sunday mornings, but what does that look like moving forward? So we're going to talk about all of that tonight. So if you are, like I said, a covenant partner, you're going to find the invite for this meeting in your inbox. There is not going to be a link on the website. If you are a part of Legacy, you, you come to Legacy, you did not get that invite, we just invite you to let us know, contact us, so we can get you that invite link, because we'd like to see you there. We'd like to... Um, have you be a part of that meeting. You know, just moving into what we want to do today, I, I want these video moments, whatever we call these things, to be helpful for you. And I think the best way I can serve you is just to continue to walk through the Bible with you in such a way that you see Jesus clearly, um, more compelling, and that you enjoy him more. Um, whether we do this by video or by blog post or social media or in person or by Zoom, my hope, our leadership's hope, is that you always understand that your deepest joy and satisfaction is going to be found where God is most glorified in your life. And then vice versa, where God is most glorified around you and in you is going to be where you find yourself to have the most joy. You see, God's glory his radiant glory and your deepest joy, those aren't free-floating from each other and detached. They're actually linked and they move together, okay? Um, so where God is most glorified, you will find the most satisfaction, which is why we're going to go through this book of Philippians. I think it's going to do a good job to help kind of pound that in and help us see it in a new, fresh way. We're not going to go through a new book because... Our disruption is behind us now and everything is going to go back to normal. We're going to go through this because your entire Bible is designed for times of war and times of peace, for times of pandemic and for times of community. Again, it's, it's for normal times and not so normal times. Our Bible, it speaks to a range of issues 
tragedies, crises to all people at all times and all nations. I mean, I think it's important to be reminded that as we refresh our apps all the time to get the most relevant data possible, that the most relevant and the most helpful content we actually have access to is our Bible. Even in a world like what we live in today, uh, I mean, when Paul wrote this letter of Philippians, no one knew what a stock market was or an antibody test. They didn't know that yet. Paul wrote this letter to a small church in Europe. It's old. It was written a long time ago. And still, even though 2,000 years later we are going through it, it will change our life. This has the potential to change your life today, this very day. Even though we live in a fresh world, a different world with 5G on our phone and curbside pickup at pretty much any restaurant you want to go to. This Bible that we are moving through has deep value. It speaks sound wisdom to you and to me for all situations, for all circumstances. This Bible is true. The gospel is beautiful. It will help us today. But this specific book, we chose this specific book because I think the next few months are going to challenge us in some key areas. And what's beautiful about Philippians is it was written by an afflicted man who was quarantined away from a treasured people that he loved who were also afflicted. You see, Paul was sheltered in place when he wrote this. He was in kind of a house prison in Rome and he was unfairly held there. It was an unjust thing for sure. But what we're going to see in this book and what's important for you and I to remember is that he wasn't whining about that time. He's not blame shifting. He's not throwing a tantrum. He's not even looking for your pity and for my pity. He is full of joy in this book. When he wrote this, he was also social distanced from all of those that he loved, disconnected. I mean, they were hundreds of miles away, this church in Philippi, and there was no phone, there was no Zoom meetings, hundreds of miles away. I mean, by the time news would get to him for how this loved church was doing, it was already a month old. <laughs> and not only did he feel alone and hunkered down in this house, I mean, people were abandoning him left and right. People that said that they would be with him to the very end were not with him till the very end. In fact, there were people outside of this house prison that were preaching the gospel just to hurt Paul. They were slandering Paul. They hated Paul. And I think probably just as hurtful, people were just ignoring Paul. So he's alone. He's impoverished. He's hurting. He's lonely. We have this afflicted writer pouring out his heart to an afflicted people that are hundreds of miles away. And what's cool is towards the end of this letter, he kind of gives this, this huge statement that we're going to reflect on as we move through this book. He tells these people that he has found the secret to joy. He has found the secret to living a satisfied, content life, not just in certain circumstances, but in all circumstances. That's something I need to hear. Paul is extremely joyful. He has robust joy in this letter. I mean, he speaks of it over 20 times, more than anywhere else in any of his writings. In fact, Philippians is going to be one of the warmest pieces of Paul's writing that you can find in the Bible. We're catching him in rare air. Not, not like he's a jerk in all the other stuff that he writes, but if you read through the Bible, and if you're a student of the Bible, you know that Romans, it, it's more academic. It comes across more systematic. Galatians feels like he's kind of wound up, right? Like he's got a, a serious edge to him. 
When we see him speaking to Timothy and Titus, he's got more of a mentor's posture, more of a father speaking to sons. Here he's mellow, he's pleasant, he's warm, and even his corrections are a little bit soft. And what I love about this is he wrote it under guard in a prison he shouldn't have been sitting in, chained to guards that didn't want anything to do with him and probably mocked him the whole time he was there. He's abandoned, he's persecuted, he's impoverished, he is alone, and he's full of joy. And I want to sit at his feet and hear him tell me and you about the gospel story and how it has set him free from the circumstances of this world. We have a lot to learn from this letter. Because we all, I mean, if we're honest, we all want joy, not just in some circumstances, but in all circumstances. And if we're also honest, I don't think any of us feel like we're all full in the joy department. That we're, we're totally satisfied. I don't think any of us can say that. We all want to be content. You know, as I was putting this together, I had a flashback to middle school. This is dumb time where I learned how to siphon gas out of a car with all of my moron friends. Because back then, that was the only way we could keep our four-wheeler running throughout the neighborhood, right? I mean, we were middle schoolers. We didn't have jobs. But we had neighbors, and they had cars, and we just felt like gas was for free, like we were entitled to all of their gas. But I remember seeing gas being siphoned for the first time. I remember seeing a friend put his mouth on a garden hose and suck until gas came out, and then it just magically kept coming. It mystified me, and I had to learn how to do this because it looked cool. It kept the four-wheeler running, and all my moron friends knew how to do it. But back then, there were no YouTube videos to teach someone how to do something like siphon gas, and so my education had a lot of mouthfuls of unleaded involved in it. Um, but eventually I learned how to do it. I'm proud to say I know how to siphon gas today, not like it's ever going to help me because I actually can afford gas and it's not the apocalypse. Um, but one thing I did learn is that like gasoline, joy for me for so many years before Jesus and a lot of years after Jesus, joy was a commodity to be stolen and guarded at all costs. And here's what I know about joy now. It's easily siphoned away from us as well. Anytime we feel like suffering comes into the room, especially if we have a bad theology on suffering and joy, either one, right? If suffering is involved, we tell ourselves, joy has to be gone. And if joy is there, we tell ourselves it's because there is no suffering in the room. We don't see them working together very well. And I also know that the world tells us where we are supposed to find said joy, right? It communicates to us where our life would be better. I mean, we call this marketing, don't we? I don't think marketing's bad. I mean, as a church, we tell people their life would be better with Jesus, with community, that our life is better as Christians with mission. I mean, there is a bit of us telling you how your life would be better, but the world does the same thing. Your life would be better if you just bought this. You subscribed to this. I also know that our tank is never really full, is it? We might be willing to say that we have joy in some circumstances maybe in many circumstances, but in all circumstances, in all moments. And here's what I know about Paul, right? He has no reason to have a full tank 
absolutely none. And yet he's thankful and he's joyful and he's telling you and me how to gain this satisfaction that moves beyond the world that we live in. And here's the spoiler, you're not going to find it from this world. Can't siphon enough of it. Money cannot bring you this bulletproof joy. Teeth whitener is not going to do it. The bigger, better job is not going to do it. The better pair of shoes is not going to do it. I mean, the perfect investment portfolio is not going to bring us the joy that is lasting, the joy that we really want. Better grades won't do it. A better spouse won't do it. Better abs won't do it. The better app won't do it. Better friends won't do it. A better church won't do it. We look at this world and we see suffering as the one thing that siphons away all the joy that we've worked so hard to gather. Like chipmunks with a bunch of, with a bunch of food, we just kind of hoard it. And anytime suffering comes near, it starts to siphon and pull away this joy. And it's why we resent suffering so much, isn't it? I mean, if you just zoom out, even today we could say, I hate this pandemic so much because it won't let me shake hands, be with my friends, go to the Smokies. It's taking things away from us that brought us joy. Can't have them at the same time. But Paul in this letter says that we can suffer, which could mean mourning and crying and hurting, we can suffer and be full of a deep resounding joy at the very same time, at the same time. I think it's hard for us. We see joy and we see suffering as two dogs fighting each other and only one dog can be left standing, right? And typically for us, joy is kind of fragile. It's temporary, it's temperamental. So what I want you to see in this letter as we move through this letter is that his jail, Paul's jail, is really no jail at all. I mean, he's not chained to these guards. These guards are chained to him. That's the feeling you get with this. He has joy in the midst of this suffering. It probably drove his guards nuts. You know, He couldn't wipe the smile off his face and whenever they did beat him and whenever he was suffering and hurting and whenever they saw him in those deep moments of missing his friends and being abandoned and impoverished and alone, even when they saw that, there was something in him that was different, that reverberated, that could fill a room, that told the gospel story. Listen, if your joy, if your joy returns Whenever all of this pandemic and quarantine goes away, you need to know that you're going to lose that joy the next bout of suffering that comes around the corner, right? For you, joy is just going to be a light switch that is either flipped on or off, depending on whether suffering is in the room with you or not. If you cannot hold suffering in one hand and joy in the other, a content life in the other at the same time, you're always going to be suffering joy from various places in the world. And what you're going to end up with is mouthfuls of disappointment. Nothing can bring you this bulletproof joy, this pandemic-proof, prison-proof joy, other than Christ, other than Jesus, alive in us, the glory of God. Friends, i got to tell you, I'm not there. I'm not here. I'm not speaking to you from a place of experience as much as I am speaking from a place of conviction. I wake up with the same dark clouds over my head that you do. 
it's a process for me to land well. I have to remind myself. I have to encourage myself. I have to find joy every day. And I don't think that's wrong for us. I don't even think Paul was Mr. Automatic, like his feet hit the ground in the morning and rainbows came out of his eyes and the birds were whistling and so was he. I don't think that's the picture we get of Paul at all. I think we get a different picture. We see him speaking candidly when he speaks to the Corinthian church about how he begs God to take a thorn away from him. In fact, it says it this, stay where you're at in Philippians, but in 2 Corinthians, he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There it is. We have Paul holding what we could call suffering in one hand and content, a content life in the other at the very same time. He eventually got there, but it was a process, right? Now, when our world is shaken and the mountains slide into the sea and everything we know has been turned upside down, we can find a satisfied life, a content life in Jesus. Like Paul, hear me, we could be in prisons and not be prisoners. And there's a difference. There's a difference. So let's look at Philippians 1. We're only going to go just a few verses in. We're not going to cover a lot of material today, but look in Philippians 1 verse 1, and we're going to go maybe to maybe 10 or 11. It starts this way. This is going to be the word of the Lord for us today. Very helpful. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Listen, there's a lot to go over there, and we're not going to get to hit it all. But what I want to remind you of is that you were hearing one side of a phone call. Anytime you read a letter written in the New Testament, I and mean, we call them epistles, whether Peter wrote it or Paul wrote it, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Romans, Ephesians, Galatians, Colossians, all of these are letters written, but something provoked that letter. So it's like when you walk into a room and someone's on the phone, and you act like you're not listening, but you're listening, right? And you can kind of put the pieces together of what's going on on the phone call. 
by hearing one side of the story, but you don't have the whole content. And context does matter in something like this. It's just good for you and me to know that about a decade earlier, Paul, a younger Paul, went into this city with kind of his A-team of church planters to plant a church. Luke was with him, uh, Silas was with him, and Timothy was with him. And now what's fascinating about this particular church plant is you can actually read about how it started and how it grew in Acts chapter 16. So we're not going to go through it today. We'll probably jump in and out of it over the next several weeks. But I challenge you to go and read Acts 16 and then just see how this church started. You see, Luke wrote the book of Acts, and he was on the church planting team. So while they're running recon on this city and starting a new church, he, we get an eyewitness to the whole thing, and that's basically what we see in Acts 16. They walked in, we'll see. They went to this river in Philippi um, that somehow had a reputation for Jews gathering there. There weren't quite enough Jews um, to warrant a synagogue, and there they found a wealthy woman who was a business owner. She dealt in clothing, and it was, she was really good at it. Her name was Lydia. And they told Lydia the gospel. And the Bible is very beautiful in how it says that the Lord opened the eyes of her heart, and she believed the gospel. Convert number one. Probably the first salvation in Europe, what we call Europe whenever you think about it. And then this lady likely started a missional community in her house. We don't know all of that. That's somewhat specula speculation as to how this missional community started, but it became the church of Philippi. And they started to maybe surround Lydia and her friends with a launch team made up very likely of the young girl that you would read about in Acts who was filled with demons. She was a demon-possessed girl. And then there was a jailer who was brought to see Christ more clearly, him and his family. And so you have this new little community that's just as diverse as the city was. You see, Philippi sat on what we would call an interstate. Interstate cities are typically a little bit more blended in the various demographics, economically, spiritually. Um, we're just a little bit more blended, and Philippi was a big dot on a big interstate. So it's a blended city, a blended missional community. On that note, it's good to consider how blended your community might be. And I don't even know if you go to Legacy Church, right? I don't know who I'm talking to. I know that if you are a part of Legacy, I want you to imagine sitting in your community group, what we call our calm groups. And I want you to envision who is in the room with you or who's on the Zoom screen with you right now, especially the ones that don't look like you. They don't all look like you, do they? I want you to consider how beautiful that is to God. Not just because it's diverse, but because you are partnered with people that it's going to require some work. It means you lowering yourself to elevate them. It means you preferring others over yourself. And this is the shape of the gospel. So the gospel story is a story of how our communities are created and really even the flow of a community. So. The gospel leads you and me to partner with people that typically we would never really build with, right? I mean, let's face it, social distancing, that's not new. That's been around for eons. It's just that we've always been able to choose who we are distanced from, right? I mean, clicks didn't end with high school, did they? <laughs> I've, I've always struggled with social distancing, and you do too. 
we are attracted to those who are like us and those who are a struggle or maybe be inconvenient, we will find ourselves maybe a little bit more at ease and building some distance with. This is going to be different because the gospel is a great story of no social distancing between God and us. God comes near a people who are not like him. We deserve a great distance. We deserve this great gulf between us and God, yet he crosses this distance to build a relationship with us. And so now you have communities that look just like that, formed by the same gospel. So you have white-collar Lydia sitting next to blue-collar Jailer Jack and Jailer Jack's family. Both are still wet from their baptism, probably don't have anything in common with each other except for Jesus, except for what matters. And they would partner together, and they would partner with Paul, and they would build a church, and that church would reach a city. And over 10 years, by the time Paul writes this, this church had grown in this uh, reputation, I guess. They were known and celebrated for their ability to give financially to other churches that were in big need. Right? And, and Paul loved this church. He had a great affection for this church, and this church had a great affection for him as well. The more you read it, you will see that. They heard, for instance, they heard that Paul was sitting in this house prison, and they wanted to be with Paul. But they didn't have any money to send, so they did something better than send money. They sent themselves. They choose one person among them, Epaphroditus, and they tell him to go carry the essence of who we are as a people with you and be with Paul. Serve Paul. Encourage Paul. And so he goes, right? Problem. Problem with this plan. I guess Epaphroditus doesn't travel very well. He got sick on the way, deathly ill, and he ended up being not so helpful after all. In fact, he became a little bit of a burden, and we'll read about that as well. I don't, I don't, I think it's kind of like, you know, whenever you try to help somebody and you end up being less of a help, you end up being almost a burden. I catch that sometimes. I'm not the most handy person, so sometimes I want to help people, and I can kind of see it on their face. I'm becoming a burden until I push them to the place of saying, look, Luke, just put the hammer down. You could, you could talk to me. You could just come here and just be with me. I just want you to be with me, right? I'm not saying that's exactly what's going on, <laughs> but we do know that there was a burden. Epaphroditus was being a burden. Now, we do know that he felt bad that the church in Philippi found out he was sick. They were burdened for him. So he was burdened because they were burdened for him. And then Paul was burdened because now he has someone he has to take care of and he is fearful for this guy's life. And so now Paul is burdened. So Epaphroditus is burdened because, I mean, everybody's burdened. That's, so what Paul does is he ships him right on back to Philippi, but he sends him with a thank you note. It's the book of Philippians. That's what we have. He's thanking, joyfully thanking God and thanking them for their love. And even in the verses that we're looking at today, Paul expresses joy and thankfulness to God, not really to them, but to God, for two main things, for growth, gospel growth, and gospel partnership. Those are the two things that kind of jump off the page if you read it. He's joyful over the durability of the gospel to start a work in us and then to finish a work in us. It says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Listen, if God begins a work in us, there's some good news in that because it means that we are not left trying to earn it according to our own merit. That's something we need to be thankful for. 
You see, it was God that opened the eyes of Lydia. Lydia didn't open her own eyes. It was God that knocked Paul off of a horse and spoke kindly to him. Paul didn't do that to himself. It was God that reached me and grabbed me and rescued me when I wasn't even looking for him. It was God that did this. I have a flame in my heart. I did not start that flame. That's something that God began and it landed on me and I'm thankful. I'm joyful and I'm thankful for that. You see, God begins the work of salvation in all of us and he carries it forward to the day of completion. We can't do any of that. And this brings thanks because it means that there's durability to this relationship with us and God that does not rest on our ability to be impressive or to stay clean. Listen, this is why Paul opens the letter by saying grace and peace to you. These are two things that don't start with us and end with God. These are things that originate with God and end on us. They land on us. Grace is God's favor towards you, totally despite you. And then peace is the olive branch he gives us, even though we've declared war on him. This is his goodness to us. And we can thank God for this. We're not impressive enough to start or bring our relationship with God to completion. This day of Jesus Christ, which as you read that, all that is, is it's the, the last day of this world. It's the, the first day of the next world. It's the day of ultimate justice, ultimate judgment. It's the day of ultimate glory. But what you need to see in this little passage is that God starts a work in us and he finishes that work in us. Friends, I think there's a value in that little bit of theology. I think it's to encourage us, even in a day like today, because we're, we're at the end of a month that we just spent full of days that kind of don't have edges to them. They, they overlap and blend together. I've been calling it Blur's Day. Every day is Blur's Day, where we've just lost the feel of rhythm and structure in our basic days. And it's tempting in months and weeks and days like this to feel like we're just not our best self. And because we're not our best self, God's view of us has dropped a little bit. He's kind of waiting for us to improve and kind of get back on the horse. I mean, it's likely that this month has not been a solid spiritual retreat for you. Agreed? It's likely taken some hits and some dips, your walk. Your steady rhythms, they've probably been disrupted. Mine have. I mean, less Bible, less prayer, less meditation. Maybe you put on some weight. Maybe you've watched more episodes than you've wanted to watch, more than you usually do. Maybe you're grumpier than you normally are. Maybe you don't sing and whistle like you used to. This is what I want you to do. I want you to be confident that God does not love you less than he did when he first wrecked your heart for him. He doesn't. And he's not, he's not waiting for you to roll your sleeves up and cleanse yourself so that you once again can be impressive to him. He's not waiting for that either. Why? Because the strength of his love for you is not dependent on you. It has nothing to do with your performance. It was built solidly on his performance. Listen, he started it in you. He will carry it forward and he will bring it to completion. And on that day of Jesus Christ, whatever that day looks like, I don't know. If you are in Christ, you will be safe and secure and be loved as if you lived perfectly as if you live with no sin, because we are in Christ and he is in us. 
So Paul is thankful over this. He's joyful over this. And I am too, because listen, I could barely start a sentence and carry it to completion. I can't complete a thought on those days. So forget a spiritual walk with God. And Paul also zeroes in on something that I think is very timely for you and me today, and that's gospel partnership. Right? We have Lydia and Jailer Jack and the rest of this church, and they are partakers and partners in the same gospel mission with Paul. They're sharing. They're sharing sufferings. They're sharing hits and wins. They're partnered. I mean, can we agree it's lousy to be alone? Can we agree that there is no power at all in being alone? I'm a functional introvert, right? And this whole lockdown, it ran its course for me pretty quick. I mean, originally, I thought social distancing. I mean, I've, I kind of already do that a lot of days, right? Doesn't sound so bad. And after about seven or 10 days, I thought this is miserable being so distant from people. But are we? You see, Paul is alone, but he's not alone at all. He has partners. He's got partners. Friends, listen, I can't tell you how thankful I have been speaking to some of you on the phone or in a Zoom meeting with you and hearing how devoted you are to the gospel how devoted you are to the church that this gospel is built in this beautiful city that God has brought us to, I hear it in your voice. I hear it in your stories. And I get off the phone and I cry because I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for you. I'm so joyful for what God is building. There is something powerful about being partnered with friends that the gospel built over long periods of time, through tough times. There's something powerful in that. There's something powerful in being in a partnership that can endure weeks of separation, maybe even months of separation, when we share our hits, and we share our wins, and we confess our sins, we confess our fears, we lead each other, we pray for each other, when we walk together, when we have a common set of goals and a vision and the same gospel and the same mission of God for the same city. There is power in that. Listen to me carefully. Friends, if you're alone right now, unpartnered, if you're alone, whether you're consciously uncoupled or for whatever reason, you've got to know you're missing something that cannot be duplicated anywhere else. You've got to know that. If Sunday a.m., Sunday morning gatherings traditionally has been the only point of contact you've had with God's people, then I know you've suffered that being removed from you, right? You've felt the suffering of being alone. That's a real suffering. That's a real pain. I mean, if we've seen anything in the last several weeks, we've seen that building a church on a foundation of Sunday morning, probably not a good move, right? It's definitely not pandemic proof. Let me tell you, a lot of churches aren't coming out of this. My prayer is that no church goes back to normal. Not ours either. That we don't go back to normal. If what normal is, is to say, hey, I'll see you next Sunday, and there's no life-on-life -life partnership for the rest of the week. Not interested. Not interested in that one bit. You see, gospel partnership brings great glory to God, and the world sees it. The world sees this partnership. And what it sees is the shape of the gospel how we sacrifice for each other, right? How we defer to each other, 
how we cross a gap and do life on life with people that don't look like us. It sees the shape of the gospel. It sees the product of the gospel, how these people can be brought together by the blood of Jesus and no other way. Nothing else is going to get Lydia and Jailer Jack in the same room worshiping side by side except for Jesus. The church is the product of the cross and the empty tomb, but also shows us the action and the movements of the gospel, how we forgive each other when we don't deserve forgiveness, how we give grace to each other when that's really hard to do, when we listen to each other, when we just want to tell people to shut up, <laughs> when we bear with people as they grow slowly, it shows the movement and the shape and the product of the gospel. It's the gospel on living display. Lydia, the jailer, the girl who had demons talking through her, Jews and Gentiles, those who worship the dollar, those who worship the moon and bark at the sun, uh, villains sitting next to grandmothers, all together partnered under the same gospel with nothing in common except for Jesus. Friends, listen, maybe this is something you're not thankful for. Maybe you wished for a better community, something more impressive to be partnered with, something easier, more convenient to be connected to. And if that's the case, I'd love to maybe take you to the cross, point you to the cross. Not to shame you, but to entice you, to lead you, to lead me. We were brought close to God who had nothing in common with us. He is holy, and we're not. He's perfect, and we're not. And this is what it says in John. I'm going to read John to you, and it's just one verse. John 1, verse 14, gives it a very good description. And the Word became flesh, and that would be Jesus, and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, listen, that's very different from us. Agreed? Full of grace, full of truth. That's not how He found me. I wasn't full of anything. Well, it's full of some things, right? I wasn't like him. He wasn't like us. This is how he found me, though, inconvenient. I wasn't going to be convenient. He found me misbehaving. I was a villain. But he made me a saint. He made us saints. That's how Paul greets the church. Calls them saints. They've been fundamentally changed by this gospel that started with him and he will carry it to completion. Listen, he began an inconvenient work for us that is so powerful that it could take a motley crew like what we see in Philippi or what we see in Knoxville, and he can express his love through a group like us perfectly, a group where no demographic line can be cut right through the middle of it. Listen, are you thankful for those you're partnered with? That's the big question for today for you. Are you thankful for those, and joyful, for those who God has partnered you with. And another question, are you thankful for the work that God has started in you that he is carrying to completion in the day of Jesus? Are you thankful for those things? If not, you have an obstructed view of the gospel. Something's in the way. Like if you're at a concert or at a, at a football game and someone stands up right in front of you and you have to kind of swerve, you have to kind of move to, to get a better view. Something is in the way. And what you're doing is you're siphoning just joy, some level of satisfaction from the world. You're not free to enjoy God. You don't feel free, so you're looking elsewhere.
But to go back to the beginning, the pinnacle of joy for you and for me is when God is most glorified in us. And when God is most glorified in us, we find ourselves most joyful in Him. And God is glorified in you and in me when we celebrate each other, when we are partnered together, enjoying the work together that He has started in all of us as He carries us to the day of completion. So today, I thank God that He began a salvation and will complete it in us. Thank God today. If you get a chance to pray with your family, to maybe step aside and meditate on your own, thank God for the salvation that He has given you. Thank God that He's partnered you with those around you who aren't like you. It's beautiful in His eyes. And friend, listen, if you're a stranger to Christ, searcher, skeptic, somewhere in between, you're not quite sure about the whole Jesus thing, man, let me tell you, there is an everlasting joy, a fountain of joy that you can go and it never ends. Like Paul says, and like he shows us, you can be joyful when he is the center of your affections and the center of your gaze. Let me, let me just submit to you to stop pulling joy from the world. It's empty. It's not going to fill your tank. It's never going to fill your tank. Give your life to God. Give your life to God. Listen, I love you a bunch. I love all of you, and I miss you tremendously. I look forward to seeing as many of you as can make the meeting tonight. Have a great day. Have a great week. We will see you soon.